five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, fellow space enthusiasts. My guests this week are from Exospace, a startup offering a platform for on-orbit data processing. So basically, edge computing in space. Now that's becoming quite a popular topic these days for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that we're generating an ever-increasing amount of data right there in space. So let's see all about it. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Everybody, I'm here today with my guests from Exospace, Jeremy, Marcel, and Mark. Yes, it's an episode with three guests this time, so a lot of content to come, raising expectations here. Guys, welcome to the show, and why doesn't the one of you start, basically, as always, giving us the elevator pitch on the company, and if then if the other two of you could also briefly introduce themselves and just talk about your different roles in the company as well, please. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for, thanks for having us. My name is Marcel. I'm the mechanical engineer co-founder here at Exospace. Just a little about, about the company is, you know, we provide decision makers with near real-time space data. And this is accomplished by processing the data on orbit or what we call edge computing on on the satellites. Um, So our primary product is, we call it a feather edge platform. So it's a device that mounts directly onto a satellite and it processes images directly from the camera to characterize objects or events of interest from space in in near real time. It's best to give sort of an example on this. Um, So one of our algorithms that we want to put on our satellite is uh, is a wildfire detection. So one of the issues with wildfire detection is the what we call latency. So the time between when the image is captured versus when it's like sent, the data is actually sent to first responders and they can take action on it. And this can range from anywhere from around five hours. But in that time, over 40,000 acres can, can burn. We're estimating that our device can do it in about 30 minutes. This is because we're able to process uh, on orbit. Jeremy, Mark, do you want to quickly introduce yourselves? Sure, yeah. Hi, I'm Mark. Uh, I am the head of business development. Um, I'm a also a mechanical engineer, so I, I help out Marcel with uh, some of the design work. And hi, I'm Jeremy, the co-founder and CEO of Exospace. Uh, I mainly work on the software development as well as you know other business development stuff with Mark. Thanks, guys. So delve, let's delve into it a little bit. So the, the problem you're solving, why, why is this a problem at all? Why don't we have real-time access to, to relevant data? So satellites today aren't, aren't as uh, smart as people, people might think. All the data that's produced on the satellite, like the raw images, have to be sent down to the ground before they're processed. And then once they're processed on the ground, they go through the internet, network, whatever, and they then get sent down to the end user. And this whole process takes time. So what we're trying to accomplish is if we process the data on orbit, 
directly on a satellite, then we can actually just send the data down directly to the user. And this cuts down the time um, significantly. And we've seen that with the folks that we talk to, companies we talk to, is if they've, they've shown interest in using satellite imagery, but it hasn't quite worked out. And one of the reasons is, is data latency, or it's uh, too expensive to access the data, things like that. So we're trying to sort of help them with that, with those problems. And yeah, just to add to that, two big reasons we also recognized were uh, well, the reason why we, we felt like this is the right time to be offering the solution is you know, microelectronics are starting to be used a lot more in space. So a lot of companies are experimenting with new products that they can use, and they're able to experiment because business models allow for that because there are more regular launches to space. So the cost to send something up is cheaper. And you know the cost or, or the the risk in using off-the-shelf components that might, might not be radiation hardened is also a lot a lot more reduced. So we kind of figured, you know, our background in space development sort of set us up for this. The, the first project we worked on was one that used mainly off-the-shelf components to build like a CubeSat. And yeah, so seeing seeing how launch costs have been dropping and the opportunity to be able to process with really, really powerful processors on orbit, uh, it all kind of came together. Okay, but so if we, if we peel back a little bit uh, on one of the use cases, so we might as well take wildfire since you guys mentioned it. And then sort of the, the objective being, obviously you detect the fire as quickly as possible. Then I guess as a first comment that of course supposes that there is satellite there with um, you know coverage and decent enough revisit rates because otherwise obviously your system doesn't even help correct yeah yeah right yeah that's kind of, that's kind of obvious <laughs> i suppose <laughs> and then, okay so if we have a satellite there that's you know sort of uh, revisiting a um or a satellite constellation i suppose which is revisiting an area of interest or that's california or australia or some other place where you know wildfires i suppose with sufficient frequency then basically your system would do the onward processing saying there's a fire and sort of send a simplified message back saying, well, there's a fire, basically like a, a process message rather than uh, the satellite sending back images to a ground station where some sort of algorithm would run on the, but either at the ground station or, or I guess sort of nearby uh, in terms of the internet, I suppose. So how much of a time advantage are we really talking about here? Uh, yeah, so currently um, state-of-the-art time for that is about five hours, and that, that's if you have all the systems in place um, to be able to do that. Different companies use different systems so are to track wildfires, so it's kind of sort of up to them and what they use and what they pay for, but for us, we, we estimate 30 minutes, and this the time delay is essentially just getting over the ground station um, that we want. Um, so that's that's where that 30 minute delay. Otherwise, it's uh, uh, instantaneous on when we you know take the image and process it. That happens fairly quickly. Um, and then we when it's over the next ground station, then we we send that down. So we say you know how big the fire is, where it is, um, and later we want to then be able to predict you know where based off like wind speed, temperature, where the fire is going to be spread to. Um, and we can then send this all down to sort of first responders in the area. Just wanted to jump in really quick. Yeah, the, the two bottlenecks that we're, we're really kind of getting around it by processing on orbit, you know, the first is when, when the pictures are taken from orbit, they're just sort of sitting there on the satellite waiting to be sent down. So yeah. we figured, you know, in that time we can be processing because that, that's just time spent waiting. And then the other is, you know, when they send all of those photos down, they're sending, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of raw data. And that all has to get sent down and then it gets sent across the internet to a processing center and then sent back and then, you know, over to the end user. So we're sending a smaller data footprint when we send it down, which means it takes less time to move all that data around and then to the end user. So those are kind of the two bottlenecks that'll, that allow us to um, 
you know, speed up the time. Yeah, no, that's that, that's fair. I think you know somebody I forget now once described it to me as saying like that the, the entire satellite communications is still like we're in the area of dial-up internet or so rather than a broadband connection. Having said that, so from the way you described it right now, it's almost like the bigger problem is is to sort of like um, you know you're not you're not passing over a ground station when you want to get data back to Earth. How much in your mind might that part be alleviated by you know? some of the stuff people are currently working on, like, you know, relay solutions, uh, just building more ground stations and stuff like that. Yeah, there, there's definitely a way to get around it with uh, a better ground infrastructure. The only, the other issue, though, is you're still sending a large data footprint, you know, across internet lines on the, on the ground. Uh, the other thing is, you know, one advantage to our system is by processing on orbit, we're able to send that data directly to a customer. So if they had their own ground station, the, their data could be totally secure instead of traveling over public lines um, by sending it directly to them. But yeah, I mean, it's a good point. There are edge computing systems that are on ground stations currently and, you know, building out the ground infrastructure, but this is another way. And that solution is also kind of Earth-centric in its solution. You know, if we're talking about building processing centers around the moon or around Mars, I think it's going to be a lot harder to build like a really good ground infrastructure in, in those areas. So probably asking a lot of dumb questions, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So when you decided on the architecture, so you guys obviously decided for this, uh, what do you call the, the Feather Edge, which sounds like it's almost sort of like a like an add-on module for for a spacecraft platform, right? I guess one other potential architecture would have been that you have your own, call it like a data center in space, right? You put you could put something in Mio or Geo, where basically then you collect data from various system customers and process it there and then send it back. Um, how did you guys think about the sort of like uh, architecture decisions? Uh I'll jump in really quick on that, Marcel, and then you can fill in. Yeah, so we actually did think about that originally. Um, that was our original design with edge computing. And, you know, we started pitching that around for about a year. And we talked to a lot of different companies, and they were interested in the idea, you know, in, in sort of a high level. But they didn't really see the use cases uh, for them, you know, like right away. So we decided to even like funnel down edge computing even more into like one specific aspect, which is how we decided on machine vision. We, we figured, you know, there are over 50% of the satellites being sent up are earth observing satellites. So you're generating mm -hmm. a lot of data, a lot of image data. Um, so if we focus on machine vision and then we use the architecture and technology we develop in that stage to move into a data center edge computing stage, then that makes a lot more sense as those you know steps progress. Um, Marcel, did I miss anything on on that? You were just one other thing is yeah, our product can be sort of add on for other you know satellite manufacturers that you know, want to be able to do edge computing, but we're also planning to launch our own satellite with, with this device next year. And this will be in Leo. And on this satellite, we're, we're, we're going to host our own algorithms on it. So one of them will be fire detection. Uh, we're also going to do monitor illegal fishing, ocean garbage tracking. Um, so these are all companies, nonprofit organizations that, you know, is really interested in just the, just the end data. Um, and we're going to be able to provide that to them with our own satellite. That, that's that's really interesting because it's sort of like um, uh, it's something that happens very often when you have you mentioned when you're originally going around and people didn't see the use cases. It's I guess quite common if you come up with a new technology, a new use of a technology that you may have to do some of the initial apps yourself. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but let me take a step back here. How did you guys originally come up with this? Like why why did you start this company? 
Well, we were, so Marcel and I met in graduate school. Uh, we both have a, we got our graduate degrees in astronautical engineering. Uh, we were friends in grad school and, you know, our skills were pretty complementary. He was a, he's a mechanical engineer. I'm a software developer. Um, so it kind of made sense that we would start a company. It was something that I've always wanted to do. And, you know, through our experience in graduate school, working on small satellites and really learning about satellite components and satellite missions, uh, it felt like there was an opportunity in space. You know, there's a lot of SpaceX launches, you know, dropping. They're basically like a bus route to space, dropping the uh, launch costs. So, uh, yeah, we kind of felt like there was something there. So we started exploring after graduate school what we could do. Um, and then Marcel went to be a Disney Imagineer. I went to um, JPL for a bit. And then we kind of just were thinking about how we could improve space technology. And one of the things that when we were pitching around, one thing that kept coming up from investors was the idea of edge computing, not edge computing in space, but just edge computing in general. Um, so taking our space background and this new idea of edge computing, we really started diving into it to see how that might be useful. And, and once we kind of realized what this technology was, was it sort of made sense that it lent itself really well to space because, you know, there is a lot of data latency. And, and like you're saying, I really like the analogy of broadband. Like we're kind of in the broadband stage of data transfer. And also in, you know, we, we started looking at the market in like three to five years, there's going to be over a million times more data generated in space every single day. And so really, if you want to operate a constellation in space, you're going to have to do some sort of data processing at least to, to send that data down. So yeah, does that cover it, Marcel? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. And of course, in the data latency, I mean, you guys are now understandably focused on where more, most of the commercial activity is, uh, which is, uh, I suppose, on the lower of orbit. But of course, the further we go away from Earth, the more, arguably, the more important edge processing comes, becomes, right? So if we, I don't know, take an extreme case for now, it's just science. But, you know, if you have a Mars, Mars rover going around, arguably, there would be some advantage to just uh, processing some stuff on board, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, um, you know, even for for low Earth orbit, there are a lot of use cases um, we talked about machine vision, but even for, you know, talking more about general purpose edge computing, uh, if you look at like constellations of satellites that, you know, 40, 50 satellites, and mm -hmm. if, if each of those satellites is sending data down, that is like just their health and status data. So, so the people on the ground can monitor it, you know, 95% yeah. of that data is good data, which is really like useless to them because they're really only interested in the bad data that comes down yeah. so that they can take action. So if there's like a data center up there or even a, a localized de computing device that's just monitoring that health and status data and watching the trends, um, then you can basically use it for predictive maintenance and, and replace a satellite, tell when a satellite's going to go bad before it does and replace it to get more efficiency. Yeah, those are kind of the, the other LEO use cases that we're thinking about. Yeah, I was just thinking like if you're talking about... Um... So for Earth observation imagery, optical imagery, right? I mean, all of the stuff that uh, has cloud coverage, right? Which basically isn't good for anyone, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's another great one. Okay, good. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the hardware product you guys came up with the moment, the, um, the Feather Edge. So how should I imagine that? Like, what's, what's the sort of size and weight of that? What kind of satellite, you know, yeah. size class can it tag on to? What, what kind of power does it draw from the, from the bus and, you know, some of those things? Yeah, for sure. So we can start with the, with the size. So if people are familiar, it's, it's a half a U. So these are uh, CubeSat units, um, essentially maybe two or three loaves of bread mm -hmm. in size. Or sorry, not loaves, uh, slices of bread, two or three slices of bread uh, stacked. Uh, that, that's probably around the size of it. Um, in terms of power draw, that's all pretty much coming from the, the processor that we have on there. So we're seeing about, it's about nine watts nominal power draw, which is uh, sufficient for a lot of 3U cubesets. Um, 
and it's fine for most, you know, anything larger than that can can handle it. Um, one of the proprietary things about our device is, is essentially the the shielding around it. So we are doing using a COTS um, hardware, and the problem with COTS hardware is is radiation. Um, so there mm-hmm. could be mm-hmm. total ionizing dose. There's single event upsets where you know uh, could. There could be high current events, bit changes, things like that. And these will all interrupt, um, you know, the processing could corrupt the data. Um, and one way around it is essentially building, you know, a shielding um, around it. So we have various layers of material, and that this can help um, reduce the the risks um, for that. And then we also have uh, different electronic components on there that um, and software uh, mitigations as well. So it takes a lot of thinking of what, what you know, what can be done to, to help alleviate that. Yeah, it's interesting. That, that's actually one part I was asking about is the sort of uh, how you deal with radiation, which even in low F orbit, let alone deep space, is obviously uh, mm-hmm. a factor. And I guess there's, yeah, there's basically two ways of going around it about it, right? One is to basically go for radiation-hardened chipsets, right? Like, um, you know, companies like Silinx or Ramon Space or others are producing, yeah. or you go for COTS and try to shield it. It's sort of, how, how did you guys go about that decision? Yeah, so, yeah, we did a trace study on it. Um, Primary reasons why I went with COTS is, is the cost. It's very it's very expensive to try and purchase radiation components. And then another reason is sort of the flexibility of our system. So we can actually, you know, switch out uh, different processors or something mm-hmm. if we wanted to, if we wanted different capabilities. So right now ours is, you know, very uh, efficient for machine vision, but if we want to do generalized computing, we might pick out a different processor. And we can do that very easily um, with our with our system compared to if we have to go find a red hardened part, you know, it might be harder to find. Um, another reason is that uh, the processors that are caught are the, I guess, top of the line one. Um, they're the most advanced uh, compared to the radiation hardened ones, which might mm-hmm. be a few years old because they, you know, they're going, takes, takes a while to <laughs> Go through that uh, manufacturing process, research manufacturing for the radiation hardened parts. So those would be the main reasons why we went with the COTS route. And as we build larger and larger systems, then we're not hindered by waiting for radiation hardened chips. We can just use our same concept of the shielding software, electrical mitigations to essentially build out larger and larger pieces where we eventually get you know to like a full data center that we can. We can send up. And so the way literally um, we could imagine this is you, I mean, you don't have to give us the specific specs, but like you take something yeah. like even like an NVIDIA off the shelf processor and you shield it and something yeah. like that. Yeah, okay. exactly. And is that that part, um, it, do you, have you tested that in space yet? Or if not, then what is your timeline sort of for, for testing that in space? Yeah, we have not tested in space. We've done some analysis um, simulations on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, our timeline currently is, is next year. So June 2022 is when uh, we'll be testing it. Um, there has been other companies that have tested COTS hardware in Leo um, with with some success, I believe. So we we know it's possible. Um, and then so once we test our own system, and you know we can prove out that you know either we have no events or if there was an event, then um, it was able to be mitigated very easily with our system. Um, and then you know once we go to Leo, then Geo is sort of the next where it's even more radiation. So we like to test it out there, and then deep space you get even more. So um, Leo is a good start for. If that works there, then we can move up. And the test you will conduct in mid next year, 
what exactly is it? Is it like a full feather edge unit with already some you know specific uh, use case algorithm, or how should we imagine that? Yeah, yeah, it'll be the full system, um, and then we'll have we'll have at least three or four algorithms on there. Um, and what's nice is that we can host all of them at the same time, and we can switch between them while uh, in orbit. So. Say we're over California, we detect the fires. Then we're over Southeast Asia, we do the illegal fishing monitoring. Um, we're over, you know, the uh, Pacific Ocean. We look for uh, garbage tracking. So it's it's a very flexible system where we could switch between algorithms um, while in orbit. And and what is your sort of um, business or like as you say revenue model on on this? So I mean, I, I could imagine like a variety of um, ways of doing this. Right, one you could just you know sell the unit. Uh, another thing is you sort of like place the unit and sort of charge a, you know, a uh, almost like a rental fee or something. Then you could have a sort of um, a service, but it's basically by the amount of process data, how are you guys going to go about it? Yeah, I'll, I'll let Mark jump in on that one. Sure. Yeah. So uh, you're, you're exactly right about that. So um, kind of our, our first thought was let's just sell this unit to uh, operators of satellite constellations so they can process their own data, one-time fee for the, uh, for the hardware, and they can deal with developing their own software. Um, and then we kind of realized that, um, that there was a really good opportunity for recurring revenue uh, by offering the service of uh, operating our own satellites um, and selling uh, the, the data to companies that are just interested in the data. Um, and as of right now, that's kind of our biggest uh, source of revenue. We found the most traction in customers that don't really have a vested interest in space outside of just getting that data that helps them with their business back on Earth. Um, and so those are kind of the two paths that that we have well-defined right now. Um, you know, we can see that there are some other uh, potential revenue models, um, but but at this point, that's kind of our, our plan for the near future. So you would basically operate your own satellites with some, uh, you know, use cases you identified as attractive ones. And um, but is, it, is it something, would you decide the use cases or uh, based on what you're seeing in, in, in the market? Or is it sort of, would you wait for specific companies, sorry, specific customers to solicit a specific use case? Yeah, generally, we're going to wait for a, a specific customer to say that they're interested in a use case. Um, and we're also even going a step further than that and looking for companies that have already developed um, the the software basically to detect um, whatever it is that they're interested in finding mm -hmm. and they can just use our satellite platform to host their model. Uh, so what's cool about um, our, our system is that we're actually able to update the software while it's on orbit so we can update the current models, upload new models, and like Marcel said, um, switch out between them while while we're flying. And then, so I suppose if the especially if the customer supplies the, um, the say the classifier, the algorithm, then um, really it's up to the customer. It's, it's not like you need to give any sort of accuracy guarantees or anything on the software if the customer supplies it. Yeah, right. That at that point, um, they're basically just paying us to uh, to host their algorithm, and we're pretty hands off. So. Uh, so that's a nice use case uh, for us, but um, but part of our our selling point for a lot of our customers is that we develop um, really high end models uh, very quickly. And so it sounds like you guys are basically going for your own your own satellites, your own spacecraft. Um, have you guys thought about you know, 
hosting on other people's satellites uh, and if so how did you guys have what's the decision process there going one route versus the other yeah absolutely we're we're also pursuing the path of being hosted on other uh satellites um and it's just really a matter of um what opportunities present themselves at the right time. So uh, at this point, um, the way we see it, scaling is, is very important. The more satellites or the more units that we have in operation on orbit, the better our coverage is for our customers. So the better we're able to, to service them. So um, really any way that we can get more unit on orbit for obviously the lowest cost um, is, is beneficial for us. So, anyway, so like one of the sort of like you know home run scenarios. Correct me if I'm wrong. One could imagine is sort of like suddenly every planet or every satellite satellite had one of your units on it. I mean, is that something it, you're pursuing as well, or is this have you had discussions? And if so, you know um, how how have those discussions gone? Yeah. So we have we have had discussions with um, with constellation operators, um, and uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I I believe the uh the common refrain is come back to us when it has flight heritage mm. um and so it's definitely something that we're kind of keeping keeping our finger on the pulse um and always looking out for those opportunities but um i think it's also um not not a necessary thing there are enough independent satellites and enough opportunities for us to launch our own constellation that that sort of opportunity is not going to uh, make or break the business. Yeah. And uh, also in my mind, I guess a, a big home run, but probably the home run uh, solution is, is being able to host, you know, like 20 different customers on on our satellites and we're constantly switching between because those are you know if we if we're if like a company that operates a constellation of satellites has one unit that's kind of a one-time sale where where they're just integrating but when we have a, a model where we're charging you know x amount of dollars every month for each customer to to use our satellite for information um, that's that can scale way way more exponentially more than you know uh, hardware units. So yeah, I think having a, a flexible software with with multiple customers is is going to be the best thing for us. Understood. How do you? I mean, how do you see the uh, competitive landscape for for this activity? Yeah. So right now, um, it's kind of an interesting field to be in because uh, there are a lot of so we see ourselves as like a, a data company, a space data company. Um, so there are a lot of companies operating in the space data market right now, but it, it's still um, highly fragmented because it's very new. So, you know, there are companies doing, um, you know, cryptography in, in space. There are companies doing, you know, general purpose edge computing. Um, there, there's us doing machine vision. We, we sort of fall into a, a, a special fragment, but what, what I think is going to happen is in the next couple of years, years, a lot of these companies developing technology for space data are going to consolidate and start, um, you know, producing more general purpose um, solutions in space. And once that happens, I think that's going to be very attractive to, you know, cloud computing giants like IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, who already, you know, operate in a $1 trillion global cloud computing market and who are kind of looking for the new, new areas to, to compute. Um, so, uh, yeah, as far as the competitive landscape goes, we don't really have any direct competitors, um, but we there are competitors who are operating in space data, if if that kind of makes sense. It's a, it's a little weird point, but... Yeah, no, that, that does make sense. And I guess, 
then coming back to talk about the, the customers, so especially if you go to specific, it sounds like end user groups, right, with very specific use cases. I mean, at least in my experience, it, we still seem to have an issue with many of the end user customers that they don't really know what is possible with space data, what kind of space data there is, how it can be analyzed. I mean, is that something you guys also run into? And and if so, how do you how do you deal with that? Uh, yeah, for sure. We have we definitely run into them. Rent to that problem. Um, a lot of the customers we've talked to actually have, they've known about Earth observation or they've looked into it or maybe tried it for a little bit, but didn't, it just didn't work out. Um, and some of the reasons was uh, was the response time. It just wasn't fast enough for, for their use cases. Um, or uh, uh, there's a lot of issues between, you know, one company will provide the image, another company then has to process the image. Um, you know, it's easier for them just to consolidate everything under, under one umbrella. Um, and that's what we're trying to make it easy for for the company. They just want the data. They don't care how it's how it, how it gets to them. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is it is a little bit about educating them um, in terms of what our capability is and how we can improve to base off what they've used in the past. Yeah, that's that's a good point, Marcel. That's what I was going to add on to. Is you know a lot of the first customers that we found they kind of realized immediately that they were an ideal customer once we told them about our product. Um, so, you know, for example, one of the customer in Southeast Asia that monitors uh, illegal fishing activity, you know, when we, when we reached out to them, they were immediately like, let's get on the phone. Let's talk about, you know, what we can do and, and those uh, you know solutions for that. Um, so it, it is kind of, there is some education that, that has to happen for, you know, for our customers. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing, like Marcel's saying, is that the information as a service is, is what they're interested in, like how many ships in this area are questionable or, you know, where, like what type of crop is below. Um, that's that's what they want to know. A common refrain, uh, not just for our um, kind of space data industry, but um, for new technology in general, um, a common refrain is, this seems like a great idea, but I don't think X market is quite ready for it, which basically to me says, um, this needs to be proven. I need to see it in action. Um, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but I heard a great analogy of, um, of the iPhone. Before there was an iPhone, no one could possibly conceive of all of the use cases and the gigantic popularity of, I mean, any kind of smartphone, but specifically the iPhone. Um, but now you think about the iPhone, like what what would the world be? I mean, probably about half of the, the world's mobile phone users use iPhones. Um, and so I think you're going to see as various instantiations of this kind of technology are proved out over the next couple of years, you're going to see it get more and more uh, common. And, and like Jeremy was saying, uh, a lot of the tech giants, I think, are going to kind of step into it um, either on their own or by buying up companies like ours. So if we come back, sort of review your favorite or sort of top top use cases you're focused on. So I heard wildfires, I heard illegal fishing. Uh, what what would be a couple of others to round that out? Uh, yes, yeah, so another one is uh, uh, garbage ocean garbage tracking as well. So there's um, piles of uh, plastic in the ocean. Problem is, is that they move around from day to day and the mm. piles aren't like huge piles but um so they're they're kind of more scattered around and it's it's difficult to you know know where they are so boats just have to sort of follow either images from a few days ago that showed the plastics or they put tracking devices on nets um as well and the nets can sort of pile up in the same location but they they were really interested in you know our sort of real-time 
tracking because they can get the location, you know, in a few hours. Um, and then they, they then they can use their boats to go intercept. Um, another one is is cloud detection as well. Um, so we want to be able to detect which images have clouds, and then if it has the cloud, then you know we don't have to um, downlink it to the ground. And then uh, another more space focused application is um, on orbit uh, rendezvous and proximity mm -hmm. operations or RPO. Yeah. Um, so we're actually working with a company, Arcasis, to help them develop their um, their RPO software. Um, and uh, yeah, that's another kind of separate um, developing market, the uh, the on-orbit servicing marketplace. Um, that's also probably going to be a, a big deal in uh, in the next couple years. Um, and uh, there's there's a whole host of of on-orbit um, machine vision applications that we're kind of just starting to dig into that um, don't necessarily have a strong commercial application at this point because um, the the satellite hardware in general just isn't on orbit yet. Um, but a couple years down the line, um, it's definitely going to be an active marketplace. It's very interesting. I was actually going to ask you about the RPO because the satellite imagery stuff, that's sort of clear to me. But I, I do agree RPO because depending on what you do, well, RPO and like you correctly say, auto orbit services, because depending on what you do, um, uh, again, it's really just almost no other way to, than to compute it on edge because you just don't have the time, right? Because of the speeds that might be involved. Um, I guess another example would be um, um, collision avoidance, debris, stuff like that. Right. And that's that's a big use case that we're kind of digging into uh, space situational awareness or SSA. Um, so right now, the, the infrastructure that's in place, like, so, so the top of the line satellites do have some onboard data processing and have sensors that will tell them, oh, you know, this is 100 kilometers away from you. Um, that gets sent to the ground and then the ground operators make maneuvers to uh, to avoid whatever it is. Um, but there's no instantiation of um, a satellite basically being able to say, oh, here's this piece of debris, this other satellite that is, you know, X number of kilometers away from me, I should perform this action all within the span of, you know, 30 seconds or, or something like that, um, basically as soon as it gets the data. Um, and so that's um, one of the, the big general use cases that I think um, any satellite operator um, could and should be interested in, especially where uh, LEO in particular is getting so crowded. Yeah, so I was going to say, so like, yeah, we have tens and tens of thousands of satellites up there. It seems like there should be some sort of um, autonomous um, capability. Um, otherwise, we may we may really have issues. So coming back to one of the, the imagery use case, um, I, I guess another one where time is of the essence, so to say, would be certain um, national security military applications. Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're also you know kind of going the uh, the government military route, um, applying for those for those grants and stuff, um, and uh, yeah, kind of chasing that down. So. Um, kind of the start of the ball of yarn with all of that is security protocols. Governments are always um, very concerned with uh, with the security, which we haven't really started to to develop yet. So um, in in that realm, we're we're starting there, and then we'll kind of build upon that for the uh, the different use cases that they see. If you looked, um, maybe this is uh, for Jeremy. If you look five ten years down down the road. 
um, where would you like the company to be? What would you imagine the company could look like? Yeah, um, in five, 10 years, I mean, the biggest thing for me is uh, expanding our technology into a more general purpose use case. So uh, really having, like you said, data centers up there, up in space, um, you know, uh, computing where we're doing predictive maintenance, where, you know, there's a lot more autonomy, where, yeah, the machines are able to just talk to each other more to send down useful data without having to double triple check with the ground before doing anything. To me, it's having a constellation of satellites um, that can do high-performance computing. Um, in 10 years, I mean, that would be at the moon, that would probably be at Mars. Um, so places where even, you know, latency is even a bigger issue, you know, between the moon or between Mars. Um, so yeah, to me, it would be expanding our, our technology that we've developed in machine vision into more general cases that that spread beyond just Earth. And at that point in time, if all goes well, where do you, where do you think the, the company might end up in terms of an exit? Is it somebody like an AWS as a potential acquirer or how do you yeah, think about th that? That's, that seems reasonable, I think. Um, like I mentioned before, you know, global cloud computing is such a big market and we're, we're sort of just expanding that infrastructure into space and to places where uh, low latency data is really important. So um, yeah, I think big uh, cloud computing companies would be very interested. Okay, but before we go to the end of the timeline with the exit, obviously you have to raise money along the way as well to, to finance your construction of your satellites and so forth. So you went down a sort of non-traditional route because you are um, listed on, on Space Ventures, which is a crowdfunding platform uh, focused on the space sector. And for full disclosures, for listeners who may not know this, I'm a member of the investment advisory committee at, at Spaced, just to mention that. So how did you guys decide to, to do that? Yeah, well, for us, it was uh, really a no-brainer once we realized that it was feasible. You know, we hadn't really considered it when we were uh, looking for more traditional financing, but we started looking at crowdfunding and met Aaron and really started talking about how crowdfunding could, could work for us. And it, it made so much sense. And one thing that really excited all of us was, you know, being able to have like space enthusiasts invest in the, in the company, having the space community be a part of like an early stage space company was really exciting. And, you know, as of this morning, I think we have 106 investors um, in the company and, you know, it's great for us because our, our network didn't expand by 106. It really expanded by everyone that those people know as well. So it's been, it's been great for us to get introductions and and you know kind of plan the next stages of the company um yeah I, I think you know i would encourage any company who is considering um crowdfunding to really do it because it's a great way to get an early stage financing that's great and we'll, we'll put the the I should notice, but the uh, space campaign, I assume, is still open, right? Yes, uh, it's open until December. So we'll, okay, we'll perfect. Ready. So we'll, we'll put the uh, we'll put the link in the show notes if somebody gets uh, excited and wants to wants to take a look. Um, guys, let me uh, wrap up with my sort of uh, typical questions at the end. One is, so if you guys didn't have this idea for for exospace, um, and you if you were to do something else in space, assuming you're still excited about space in general, is there any sort of other business you would be excited to do? Any other area you would look at for for ideas? Yeah. Uh, I mean, oh, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. Something that's that's really interesting to me is um, is space habitat, um, like environments where where life can grow in in harsh conditions. Um, and as a mechanical engineer, the um, the structural elements and kind of the um, the ceiling and all of the logistics that go into the ventilation and what have you of of those uh sorts of structures are, are really interesting to me so um that's probably what i would aim to work on that's uh, that's actually interesting that might even be a ultimate link because if again if we're in a very far away place and you're talking about sort of habitats with um let's call it autonomous life support systems 
um, for humans, but also for growing crops and stuff like that. Again, we will probably need edge computing. Yeah, absolutely. So Marcelo, I think Marcel maybe also wanted to, to say oh, something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing I would explore uh, would be on orbit uh, assembly of structures. Um, so obviously we were limited on earth by how large we can build uh say a telescope or something, and you see by the James Webb telescope, you know, have the issues having something that large. Um, but if we could assemble something on orbit, we could build like giant structures that can do things that um, aren't possible right now. Um, and that's probably the structural mechanical side of me <laughs> talking as well, because it'd be interesting on, you know, how to figure out how to how to do that um, on orbit. Yeah. And uh, for me, I'm really interested in autonomous systems. So I think anything operating remotely, uh, I think, you know, um, like resource mining is very interesting mm -hmm. and developing, you know, systems that, that are intelligent enough to go out and, and um, collect useful resources is, is a really interesting area. So I, I guess the nice thing is that all three of the uh, use cases, the three of you mentioned, all have a use for edge computing, basically. I mean, if you yeah. want to construct, <laughs> if you want to construct something on orbit, right? And let's say you want to like, you know, you have some robotic arm that connects one truss to another truss, you, you probably need edge computing again, just to like not mess that up and like have it smash. Yeah. Other, uh, otherwise, it'd be a long, long process because <laughs> yes. you have to keep talking to the guy on, on the ground saying, yes, that's fine. We can move one centimeter. Exactly. Exactly. Guys, and then the final question I was close up with is, uh, is science fiction and you know whether you like science fiction and what puts some of your favorite science science fiction uh yeah, yeah. I, I can start with that oh sorry mark but uh so my mine is time travel i love anything any shows or any movies that sort of explore time travel i like how they each of them has a different different set of rules um for it there's no like general rule about it um so you know see most recent like avengers endgame had their own time travel theory interstellar um, even star trek things like that so whenever there's a show movie with with that sort of concept, uh, I definitely enjoy it. Yeah, I like um, kind of multi-dimensional sci-fi um, and like stories about entities or whatever that exists potentially like outside the realm of like standard dimensions. Um, uh, one in particular that comes to mind is um, Annihilation. Um, the base that's a movie based on a book series um, called the Area X trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer. Um, it's really. Mm -hmm really kind of out there and gets into like biologically melding um a bunch of like disparate um life forms and uh yeah really really interesting stuff sorry i've got a siren coming by um yeah so for me it's the uh rama series by arthur c Clarke and gentry mm -hmm. lee um i i read that series a while ago and it's probably one of my favorites. Um, what I really like about science fiction is the opportunity to explore like philosophical ideas and uh, ethics and moral philosophy, like through a really interesting lens where it's kind of less in your face. Um, and so the story is, yeah, it's about an alien starship that comes in on this cylinder that's like 50 kilometers long and 20 kilometers wide. And, you know, the humans go and explore it and kind of the whole series unfolds from there. So it's really good. Yeah, certainly. Rendezvous with Rama, I recommend to everybody. It's sort of one of the absolute classics of uh, sci-fi literature. Guys, thank you so much for, for stopping by today. It was, was very interesting. And best of luck to Exospace. Best of luck with the, with the crowdfunding. And again, we put the link in the, in the show notes. And maybe we'll do this again in a year or two and see um, where we stand. Sounds great. Thanks, Raphael. Thanks, Raphael. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us 
at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.